This week on Geek Explained, it's episode 52. And since DC Comics has an obsession with that number, we're doing a deep dive on one of my favorite subjects in the DC universe, Batman's trusty sidekick, Robin. There have been more than a handful of Robins over the 79-year history of the character, but who really is the best boy wonder or girl wonder of them all? Find out here as we Geek Explain Robin, the boy wonder. Or girl wonder. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about Robin. Uh, I got the idea of this from a good friend who was asking me my opinion on who the uh, best Robin might be, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, this is a full, going to be a full episode just dedicated to... Uh, Robin, all the people who have worn the mantle of Robin, the people who have committed their life to being Batman's trusty sidekick. But before we get into that, we're going to get into a little bit of news, a little bit of comic book news, a little bit of uh, comic book movie news, and we're going to kick that off with the Joker trailer, which dropped right after the episode last week dropped. Um, it, of course, this has become kind of a running gag for me right as I'm uploading an episode, a new trailer for something drops, and then I have to wait an entire week before I get to talk about it. So um, we got the first full trailer for Joker. The previous uh, kind of quote-unquote trailer was basically just a first look at the character, the face paint, the general uh, you know, green hair and suit look that we were going to get from Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. And this trailer went, I think, went a long way to uh, get people who even were kind of skeptical about the film to really jump on board with it. This film looks like a kind of a uh, late 80s dark kind of crime thriller and I'm super excited about that. Joaquin Phoenix plays Arthur Fleck who is driven basically to insanity by the harsh uh, city that he lives in going from what looks like kind of a uh, sign spinning mascot for a store that's going out of business into the Joker that we all know and love question mark. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. The trailer looked really good. They used a really old-timey song, which with the uh, first look as well, they used kind of an old-timey sounding song. And I think that really kind of sells the, uh, I don't know, the old-school showmanship of the Joker. He's always been very flashy, very vaudeville. And I really appreciate that aspect. And it looks like Joaquin Phoenix is going to be able to, to run the gauntlet in this film where he goes from like just really uh world stepping on him as arthur fleck slowly developing as he gets beaten down further and further and further and further and further until he becomes you know the murderous psychopath who's dancing on the steps and making appearance on talk shows those of you who have read 
the Dark Knight Returns know that the Joker has a really iconic scene when it comes to talk shows, and I'm wondering if this is going to be included in this film. I'm really excited to see if that happens. But yeah, overall, really enjoyed the trailer, and I'm definitely looking forward to the film. I think that's coming out in October. Uh, next up, Endgame. Avengers Endgame tickets officially went on sale on April 2nd. I was luckily able to get a couple tickets, but um, not a lot of people were, and it's crazy to me. I was looking on uh, eBay, and I saw that someone's selling tickets to Endgame for like $10,000, and that blows my mind. Because I feel like if you really wanted to, you can get tickets at normal price. But anyway, it was uh, it was pretty crazy. I was a little stressed there for a bit, but we were able to get some pretty good seats um, at the local theater near us. So I'm excited to see the movie and, of course, stick around later on for uh, the continuing rankings, the non-official rankings of the MCU films. But uh, talking about a different kind of comic book film, Shazam also premiered this past weekend. Um, I had a lot going on this weekend, so I wasn't able to put up a Geeksplained Extra for the review of the film. I did see it. Uh, we went and saw it, I think, Saturday night. And uh, long story short, I might end up doing a little bit of a... Uh, lengthier review at another time, but I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with the film. Zachary Levi is incredible as Shazam. Um, I think his name's Jack Dylan Grazier, who plays uh, his best friend Freddy. Killed it as well. I really enjoyed the cast. I thought pretty much everybody was spot-on casting. They did a great job with this. Uh, of course, the film has flaws, but I really enjoyed it overall. I think it's a great first step in the right direction um i saw aquaman recently we talked about that a little uh i want to say like last week but um aquaman was fine and i'm sorry if you loved aquaman and you thought it was you know the second coming of the dceu but i would i would say this might be a little bit closer i think this is a great first outing for Shazam as a character, and I'm really excited to see where they go from here. Uh, next up, some big news. If you are a Netflix Netflix, bleh, why is that tough for me? Netflix fan. If you're a Netflix fan, uh, Umbrella Academy has just been renewed for season two. They made the official statement on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm ecstatic. I'm really, really excited. Uh, if you haven't yet, go back, check out our episode on Umbrella Academy, and um, gosh, I'm so excited. I'm really looking forward to see what they do with season two since... The first season was kind of a mishmash of the first two volumes. Um, I'm really interested to see where they go if they end up drawing inspiration from the third and the now ongoing fourth volume, or if they go in a completely different direction. Either way, we'll see, and I'm really excited to see where they go with that. Uh, talking about Captain Marvel, but not the one from DC, Captain Marvel officially passed $1 billion in the box office. Um, yeah, that's great. I'm really, really happy for them. I'm really excited for that whole team, for Disney, for Brie Larson, for everyone who put their time into 
making that Captain Marvel movie, um, a lot of people were really down on it, and a lot of people were really trying to stir up controversy to get people to boycott the film, to get them to do this, that, and the other. But for me personally, I really enjoyed the film, and I'm really excited because this means that we are going to get more female-driven films because we now know that they can be profitable, and Hollywood now knows that they can be profitable. So I'm really excited. I'm excited for that whole team. I'm excited for Captain Marvel to show up in Endgame. And I'm excited to see where they go for the inevitable Captain Marvel 2. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, up next, uh, WrestleMania was this past week. Or this past weekend. Uh, this whole past week was a very wrestling-heavy show. That is one of the reasons why I had such uh, time constraints put on me this past weekend when I was uh, getting my notes together, getting all the uh, movie stuff out of the way, because I'm a huge wrestling fan. If you don't know, I'm a huge wrestling fan. I've been watching wrestling since I was a little kid, and I just go all in when it comes to uh, wrestling. Um, big fan of WWE, of New Japan, Ring of Honor, uh, the emergence of AEW as they are coming along. Um, and yeah, I even though it was a ridiculously seven and a half hour show, I really enjoyed WrestleMania as a whole. Um, if you're not a wrestling fan, I'm sorry <laughs> that I'm taking up some time talking about it. But um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I did get a request from a good friend of mine to kind of dive, do a deep dive on why I think... Uh, or why I like wrestling and how that can translate to a comic book audience. So expect that in the next couple, uh, next month or two. Um, we're gonna see. We're gonna see. I don't know exactly how uh, how many of our listeners are wrestling fans. So that could either be really great or it could completely crash and burn. But either way, I will be here. You will be here, and we will go through this together but uh one of the big things that i thought and we're going to close out the new segment with this was uh we got an official first look as well as a synopsis and casting stuff for batman hush batman hush the animated adaptation of the original series written by jeff loeb with art by jim lee um is a big deal batman hush i think ranks up there with some of the most iconic Batman stories of all time. We're talking Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, uh, Killing Joke even. Um, and Batman Hush is one of the, from start to finish, one of the best self-contained Batman stories ever. If you uh, know somebody and they're like, oh, I'm interested in Batman, but I don't know really where to start, give them Batman Hush, and that will, I guarantee, turn them into a Batman fan. And for the animated adaptation, uh, DC, of course, knocks it out of the park every time with their uh, animated features, whether it's, you know, the adaptation of The Dark Knight Returns, whether it's um, Superman vs. the Elite, one of my personal favorites, Death of Superman, and its second part, The Reign of the Supermen. And recently, that just got released on digital and soon to be released for... Uh, I want to say Blu-ray and all that stuff. Um, Batman or uh, Justice League versus the Fatal Five, I believe, is the name of that one. Really excited to check that out as well. Um, 
there's a lot riding on this. There is a lot riding on this because Batman Hush is a big deal and a lot of people have a lot of feelings about that story and they want it to succeed. They want it to be up to the level of some of the other animated properties. They've been killing it over at DC when it comes to their animated properties. And I'm one of the people who really wants this to be good. And we finally got a first look uh, back at WonderCon. I wasn't able to be there for the panel that this stuff was shown at, so I had to find this out kind of secondhand. But it looks like we're going to be getting pretty much the Batman Hush story intact for the most part. Um, it's going to feature Jason O'Mara reprising his role as Batman from the Justice League War, pretty much the New 52-style animated films. Uh, Jerry O'Connell, who voiced Superman in Death of Superman and Reign of the Superman, is returning as Superman. Uh, we're getting as our uh, Rain Wilson as Lex Luthor and Re Rebecca Romaine as Lois Lane. Uh, for Batgirl, we're getting Peyton List, which I think is an interesting choice. Jennifer Morrison is going to be voicing Catwoman, Selina Kyle. I'm not super familiar with Jennifer Morrison as an actress. Um, just kind of looking on her IMDb here, she was in the 2009 Star Trek, uh, she, oh, oh, she was Emma Swan in Once Upon a Time. Okay, so I, I've heard of her in passing. Um, so yeah, Catwoman's big part of the Hush storyline. Sean Mayer is returning as Nightwing from the New 52 style animated films, including all the Teen Titans films. And Maury Sterling is return or is uh, debuting as Thomas Elliot, aka Hush. I'm not super familiar with um, Maury Sterling as an actor. Um, just kind of looking over his IMDb here, he was in Homeland, um, NCIS New Orleans. Oh, he was Batman the Killing... Oh, okay, so he played... Uh, Par oh, God. He played Paris uh, in Batman the Killing Joke, the animated... Uh, adaptation of that story and if you don't know who paris is then i am so happy for you because you missed the first 15 minutes of that batman killing joke film uh paris was the villain for the kind of uh prologue into the killing joke story that drove batgirl to sleep with batman and then ultimately retire as batgirl it was the weakest uh part of that film but as a villain he was pretty good. So I'm interested to see where he goes with Thomas Elliot. Thomas Elliot's a great character. He's a really, really great character. And Hush is one of, again, the seminal stories for Batman. So I'm excited to see uh, how this goes. The one thing, and one of the things that kickstarted this whole uh, concept for this episode, is Stuart Allen is returning to voice Robin. But not Tim Drake, who was the Robin during the Hush storyline. He is returning as Damian Wayne from the New 52-style films and the Teen Titans animated films. And that bothers me more than I can tell you. Um, it's frustrating because, yeah, cool, Stuart Allen does 
you know, a great job as Damien. He plays him pretty much as well as you can play him when it comes to the uh, the animated uh, landscape. But Tim Drake was such an integral part of the original Batman Hush storyline. And just replacing him because it's convenient and I guess this is going to fit into the New 52 stuff that they've been doing in the films. Oh, man, I'm just, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not excited about that. It's kind of frustrating because it feels like they're kind of taking the easy, the lazy way out by just kind of putting this where they want it to be and not making this a true adaptation. And I recognize that when you're talking about true adaptations like The Dark Knight Returns, like All-Star Superman, which they have done and they have been great, um, it doesn't give them a whole lot of room to play. But in that same vein, like there's a reason that those stories work. And one of the reasons that the Batman Hush story works is because of Tim Drake. So that's frustrating. It's just, it's not how I would have done it. But... We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to need more uh, looks at Batman Hush. I'm going to need trailers. I'm going to need uh, those you know, 12 to 15 minute uh, special look into the films that they always release with the uh, prior animated film. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm going to reserve judgment until I see more of it. But I'm really hoping that if they're not going to put Tim Drake in the story, that they really make Robin as important as he's supposed to be in this film, even though it's Damian Wayne and he's going to react to these situations differently. Anyway, um, that was my, uh, that was my little freak out, my little rant, but that is it for the news portion. And that is going to bring us right to the main course of this episode, the entree, if you will. And that is the full, history of the robins so we're going to be going from robin one to robin six all the way through that and i hear you thinking but wait a second there's been only one robin or two robins or three robins no 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 my friend no there have been six robins when we're talking about mainline continuity and we're going to be going through all of them and then once we've gone through kind of each one on their own, I am going to be doing an official ranking of how I see the Robins. Uh, we're going to be doing a Robin Royale, if you will. Um, just basically talking about which Robin's the best. Which Robin out of all six of the Robins is the top Robin, the best Robin, the king of the Robins. Whew, getting fired up already. But just so you know, we do have a packed show for the rest of this as well. So following our big lesson on the Robins, uh, we do have, of course, our weekly review, counting uh, this past week's episode of the Doom Patrol. We have this week's Comics Countdown, and then, of course, we are jumping into the continuing saga of our official rankings of the MCU. But for now, let's jump into the history of the very first Robin, the one that started it all, Dick Grayson. Now, Dick Grayson, who made his very first appearance in Detective Comics number 38 in April of 1940, he's 79 years old. He's looking pretty good for 79. Uh, was born to John and Mary Grayson, 
and was part of the Flying Grayson's Trapeze Act for Haley's Circus, which toured all over the U.S. I don't know if they toured all over the world. I'm just going to say they toured all over the U.S. because I know that for sure. But uh, one fateful performance in Gotham City of all places uh, changed Dick Grayson's life forever. He was witness to a local mobster named Tony Zuko trying to shake uh, Haley down for protection money. And when Haley refused, Tony Zuko said that he would make sure that Haley and the entire circus regretted that. Following this, during that night's performance, the trapeze wire snapped during the Flying Grayson's performance, and both John and Mary Grayson fell to their deaths, leaving Dick Grayson an orphan. Now, Dick Grayson was taken in after a little bit of time by billionaire Bruce Wayne, who was a neglectful guardian right from the get-go, and turned uh, Dick Grayson into a pretty resentful ward. And following this, with the complete lack of attention that he was getting from his... uh, Guardian, Dick Grayson went out one night to try and track down Tony Zuko to avenge the murder of his parents and ran straight into the Batman, who was also working the same case. Batman brought him back to the Batcave and then revealed his identity to be Bruce Wayne. Now, seeing a little bit of himself in Dick Grayson, Batman decided to take him on and train him in his ways and took him on as Robin. Now, the original or the kind of origin of the name Robin has a couple different sources depending on who you ask and what continuity it's in. Um, On one hand, he was taken from the Robin Hood films with Errol Flynn and that kind of uh, influenced the whole look of the character as well. On the other hand, it was the nickname that his mother gave him because she said that whenever he was flying up on the trapeze, he reminded her of a Robin. Weird thing, but okay. And Robin quickly became an indispensable part of Batman's war on crime. He really gave a great contrast to Batman. With uh, Batman, you know, being brooding and dark and Dick Grayson, you know, a performer, a circus performer, bringing this light zaniness, this fun aspect to the whole thing. So this relationship continued on for a good long while. Uh, The big kind of uh, stepping stone into Dick Grayson becoming Robin was surviving the gauntlet, which was a really cool idea just narratively um the the idea behind the gauntlet before dick grayson could become robin he had to pass a final test which was called the gauntlet and in this gauntlet dick basically had to elude batman on the streets of gotham no help no gadgets no nothing for an entire night from sundown to sunup without any outside help and it's it's a thrilling story if you can track it down and find it it's a great story but basically dick grayson is able to survive the gauntlet escapes batman for the entire night and so batman brings him in and they are officially partners so this relationship continued on for a good long while a good long while being i think it was something like 44 years making him the most tenured robin in publication history anyway out of all of them So he was 
Robin basically from age 10 or age 8, depending on, again, the continuity, all the way up to 18. <laughs> um, and Robin had a lot of great adventures with the Batman. Um, he really took to it as it kind of being a fun game for him up until a run-in with Two-Face really served as kind of a wake-up call for him and this being like, oh, this is serious, this is a thing. And basically this whole confrontation was Two-Face had captured uh, the new district attorney at the time as well as batman and was basically doing a sophie's choice thing hanging them each above a kind of a gallows death trap so robin of course tries to save uh the da because you know that's what batman taught him to do and used a batarang to cut the rope but didn't account for two-face and his gimmick at this point which is you know double two all of those things and it was a twofold trap that dropped the da into the water and killed him drowned him and robin was ultimately unable to save this man's life uh following this two-face beat robin to near death um batman was unable to escape until the beating was over and then after of course, was able to rescue Robin, defeat Two-Face, and continue on the day. Uh, this really put a damper on Robin. Just, it changed his whole worldview, not just on the role of Robin, but also on just his life, because his life can now end at any moment. So, because of this, uh, Batman quote-unquote fired Robin for a short time sidelining him while he recovered and also giving him a little bit of time to kind of reconsider and get his life together get his really refocus and see if this is something that he wants to stay with for the rest of his life um pretty soon after this robin started attending hudson university taking himself on solo missions once he was back up and running and then joined and pretty much helped to create the original Teen Titans, along with his friends Speedy, Aqualad, Kid Flash, and Wonder Girl. Soon after this, um, Robin started to feel a little like a little kiddish for Dick Grayson. Uh, he was starting to outgrow the old uh, pixie boots and green underoos, and during an event for the Teen Titans called the Judas Contract, officially gave up the Robin role and stepped into his role as Nightwing. So that is where we're going to cut off the uh, Robin career for Dick Grayson. We're looking at just the Robin careers this time around. Um, I would love to do an episode just on Dick Grayson. He, I think, is unequivocally the greatest comic book character ever created. And you can quote me on that. You can feel free to at me on that. But um, yeah, Dick Grayson, wonderful character, amazing start for the Robin legacy. And unfortunately, it was not followed up by a comparatively great successor. Because the second Robin to take up the mantle was a young boy named Jason Todd, who made his first appearance in Batman number 357 back in 1983. Now, Jason Todd was different from Dick Grayson in every way, though not at first. 
during the pre-crisis, he was basically a <laughs> he was basically a redheaded Dick Grayson. That's all he was. He was also a gymnast. He also had the same attitude as Dick Grayson. And when he became Robin, they just dyed his hair black, and it was basically the exact same. However, post-crisis, which is what we're going to be looking at, uh, slash. New 52 slash all this stuff because now that we're in the rebirth era everything kind of happened and yet didn't happen it's confusing we'll just say comics but jason todd was a very different person from dick grayson with a very different upbringing his father willis todd was a two-bit criminal who got himself locked up in prison while his mother Catherine Todd was a drug addict, a very heavy drug addict. And when Jason's father was locked up, Jason had to fend for himself since his mother was basically incapable of doing anything besides feed her drug addiction. So to help her with medications, to try and take care of them, at a very young age, Jason Todd started uh, boosting cars started uh, taking car parts, stealing car parts, selling them for cash just so that they could survive. Ultimately, though, of course, um, Jason Todd's mother did end up overdosing on the drugs that she was addicted to, leaving Jason Todd completely alone. He went out on the streets, he was homeless, and he, basically to survive, continued doing what he was already doing, which was just stealing car parts. And that's how he lived his life for the early part of his childhood. And then one fateful night, he happened upon an alleyway that contained the Batmobile. And Jason Todd, with his amazing car parts stealing abilities was able to steal a wheel off the Batmobile and went back for the rest of the wheels but of course as he arrived to the Batmobile he found Batman waiting for him. Now the whole reason that Jason was even able to steal the Batmobile in the first place was because they had they were new tires and Batman hadn't quite yet installed the uh, new Bat security hubcaps on these wheels. So uh, Jason was able to steal that first wheel, but of course when he showed up back there, Batman was waiting for him. Following this, uh, Bruce tried to submit Jason into kind of a halfway home, basically a boarding school for troubled kids, but it didn't work out because pretty soon after this, Batman found out that the uh, school was actually running as a uh, as a cover for a for an academy, basically training troubled kids to be child criminals. So after Batman busts the whole thing wide open, gets these kids to good homes, he decides, I'm going to take Jason, I see potential in you, I'm going to take this anger that you've been just bottling up inside because of your horrible upbringing, and I'm going to help you use it in a positive way. So he trains him to be the next Robin, because of course at this point, uh, Robin had been Nightwing for a time, he was... I, I, he'll never admit this, but I think Batman was a little lonely, and he wanted someone to train. So he trained up Jason Todd, and Jason ultimately, of course, was super enthusiastic, because growing up on the mean streets of Gotham, you know about Batman, you know about Robin, and this was the 
basically the child fulfillment that readers of Batman at the time really had kind of envisioning themselves as they couldn't really envision themselves as Batman but they could definitely envision themselves as Robin palling around with the Batman on their adventures now Jason Todd because he was a street rat a riffraff if you will was not the acrobat that Dick Grayson was but he made up for that with all of his uh, street smarts all of his skills growing up on the mean streets, as well as undying enthusiasm. He was probably the most enthusiastic to become Robin, just because he knew the legacy behind it, and he really wanted to fulfill this role. Unfortunately, that enthusiasm really masked a really bad mean streak. Uh, Jason, because of his upbringing, had a lot of anger in him. He was just... He was bad, and as time kind of went on with him in his uh, in his tenure as Robin, his anger started to manifest itself. Started to he started to lash out. He was brash. He was impulsive. He argued with Batman all the time. There's this really silly scene, but it's kind of iconic for Jason's character, where they're in the Batmobile and Jason, you know, strikes up a cigarette inside the Batmobile, and Batman's like, "You can't smoke that in here." You know, you're also, you know, like I think twelve. And Jason's like, you're not my dad. And they would argue all the time. Jason was really uh, disobedient. He would completely go against Batman's orders on multiple occasions. And uh, the greatest example of this, of course, was the time that Jason possibly killed someone. Now, this adventure is, again, iconic for Jason's character. Um... This is a big turning point for not just Batman, but also, I think, the readers of, of Batman at the time. So basically, Jason and Batman were uh, trying to bust this criminal uh, sex trafficking ring. And one night, they're busting the whole thing wide open. And while Batman is uh, holding off some villains, Jason chases the criminal Felipe Garzonasa up into the higher levels of the building and up onto a balcony. Now, prior to this, uh, Jason found out that Felipe had, through his abuse, through probably really bad means, um, forced a young girl to suicide. So Jason was vengeful, he was angry, and when Batman finally caught up with Jason, Jason was standing outside on the balcony and Felipe Garzonasa was laying face down on the streets below. And while we've never gotten official, legitimate confirmation, and it, even though Jason said, oh, he fell, he tripped and fell, um, it's pretty uh it's pretty heavily implied that jason either pushed or even threw felipe off the balcony to his death um this is huge because this is breaking batman's one rule batman's one rule and his strict code to never take a life i'm gonna say that again for the uh zack snyder's in the room batman's strict code to never take a life. Following this, 
Jason is really unstable. Batman is seeing this, and he even asks Barbara Gordon to kind of come out of retirement as Batgirl, because she had retired for a short time, to work with Jason, but... Ah, Barbara comes back after the adventure, basically telling Batman, like, there's a darkness in him, and this is going to end up blowing up in your face. And no one, especially not Barbara Gordon, knew how literal that would be, because later on, uh, Jason discovers that his mother, the woman he thought was his mother, is actually not his biological mother. And so he runs away from the Batcave and uses Batman's numerous resources to track down his birth mother, who is working as an aid worker in Ethiopia. Uh, this woman, whose name is Sheila, uh, as we come to find out, is using her supplies and she's basically extorting money through her organization. And she is being blackmailed because of that extortion by who else but the Joker. Uh, basically, he find, he found out about her extortion and so is using that information to blackmail her into giving him medical supplies. So she has basically been embezzling money. It's a whole situation. And to almost appease the Joker in an attempt to kind of save her own skin, Sheila gives up her son to the Joker. And this is, of course, the iconic story a death in the family where we see jason tied up and brutally beaten to death by the joker with a crowbar however sheila didn't get out of this unscathed following this beating he had his men tie up sheila as well and left both of them inside of the warehouse with a time bomb batman meanwhile is finally you know catching up following all the clues trying to get to jason but of course he shows up at the warehouse the warehouse explodes killing both sheila and jason and we are going to wrap up that uh career for jason of course he went on to be revived as the red hood later on but we're looking strictly at the robins here so um it's unfortunate it's a really sad story it was basically the uh the beginning, the very first cautionary tale when it comes to uh, bringing in a Robin who isn't, who really, uh, who really isn't um, suitable or isn't suited for that role. It's a cautionary tale for Batman on bringing someone in too quickly who isn't right for this task and it really just kind of backfiring on him. So this is known as kind of batman's greatest mistake his greatest tragedy whatever you want to look at it and this is uh this is rough this is a rough time for him we're going to jump over into a uh parallel continuity next for our next up and that is the plucky indomitable hella sassy carrie kelly now carrie kelly who made her first appearance in the dark knight returns number one back in 1986 was essentially the third to pick up the mantle in an alternate timeline um in this timeline jason todd was killed as well though we don't know exactly if uh this was the same circumstances in which jason todd died or if it was something else the story happened before uh the 
a death in the family storyline, which I think tells you a lot because they were already talking about killing this kid way before this whole thing even uh, kicked off. But anyway, Carrie Kelly, normal kid living in the semi uh, futuristic Gotham of the uh, futuristic 80s, uh, was a normal 13 year old school girl. And uh, one night she was attacked by muggers, but was saved by the recently returning and grizzled old veteran Batman, who was on his first night out of retirement. Uh, This chance encounter inspired Carrie Kelly, who uh, was pretty bored with her normal life. Her parents were basically absentee hippies who seemed to be high all the time and at certain points even seemed to forget that they even have a daughter. Um, This kind of inspired her to pick up a Robin costume. She ordered it, and I think it's hilarious that uh, you can just, in this continuity anyway, you can just order a Robin costume. Um, And she struck out with her trusty slingshot on her own as Robin. Uh, She would later on... uh, take on a couple uh, petty con men and reunited with Batman and uh, Batman wasn't super sure about taking on a Robin at this point because of the death of Jason of course but Carrie was very different from either Jason Todd or Dick Grayson in that she was capable even though she didn't have a whole lot of training she was intelligent and she could really hold her own and keep up with this uh darker Clint Eastwood style Batman uh the whole thing behind her was that she was constantly on the almost on like Robin probation Batman basically said the first time you disobey my orders I'm going to fire you and so what if she does what does she do of course she just disobeys his orders on multiple occasions and him going I'm going to fire you but he keeps letting her slide because he knows that she's good in this role and that she has a natural uh, ability when it comes to supporting Batman on his renewed war on crime. And there is no better example of this than when she and Batman went up against the mutant gang. The mutant gang that was kind of running roughshod over Gotham in this futuristic Gotham. Um, the first encounter with the mutant leader, Batman barely escaped with his life. The mutant leader was is strong, he's fast, he's younger than Batman, and he was able to overpower him. However, Batman was able to briefly incapacitate him and escape. So, teetering on the edge of death, Carrie is able to get Batman back to the Batmobile and attend to him all the way to the Batcave, where, following Alfred's timely intervention in saving Bruce's life, Bruce finally accepts her as Robin, and they officially strike out again as Batman and Robin. Uh, Through here, in her very brief time as Robin, uh, Carrie was able to help Batman turn the tide against the mutant gang and ultimately defeat the mutant leader, disbanding the mutant gang and even turning a couple different splinter cells of them into the Sons of Batman, who are basically going to be their new uh, street-level army. Uh, Following this adventure, the Joker returned. He kind of returned out of retirement and went on to kill an entire uh, talk show audience as well as numerous people at a nearby carnival. Uh, Batman 
chased the Joker into the Tunnel of Love while Carrie Kelly was left to defuse a bomb on the fairway. And she was able to successfully defuse the bomb. And then she had to help Batman escape following the death of the Joker. And from here on in, it's basically Batman and Carrie against the entirety of the GCPD. Because they view a Joker, who did kill himself, mind you, Uh, They view his death as a homicide and Batman as the killer. So following this, there was basically a cat and mouse game between Batman and Robin and the GCPD, which really culminated in the U.S. government bringing in Superman to take down Batman once and for all. From here, in the climactic battle between the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight, uh, Carrie was able to support him and provide cover fire on numerous occasions, along with the one-armed Oliver Queen, the former Green Arrow. And after Bruce Wayne faked his death, Carrie Kelly was there to dig his body up past his funeral and help him set up a new underground Batcave where they would be renewing their, their... initiative to fight crime from the shadows and so this is where her role as robin ends uh in the dark knight strikes again the thrilling sequel to the dark knight returns uh carrie kelly becomes Catgirl, which i think really tells you all you need to know and then in the dark knight 3 the master race she takes on a bat woman slash bat girl role and that is pretty much it for carrie kelly so that's her role as robin jumping back into the mainline continuity our next robin is tim drake timothy jackson drake to be exact now tim drake made his very first appearance in batman number 436 in 1989 so there was a pretty pretty good period between uh, Jason's death and Tim's uh, kind of debut as Robin. And Tim holds the uh, second place spot for the most tenure as Batman's sidekick as Robin because he's still rocking the Robin getup even today, which gives him 20 years. 20 years as Robin. That's a big deal. And is one of the contributing factors to why he should be in the Hush animated film. But anyway, so Timothy Drake, Timothy Jackson Drake, later Timothy Jackson Drake Wayne, uh, grew up as a another very stark contrast from Dick Grayson. And I'm going to warn you, this is a long one because, again, we're talking about 20 years as Robin. Uh, Dick Grayson spent 40, 44, and uh, his adventures were vast. He went through both the Golden and Silver Ages, but Tim Drake. Tim Drake went through some stuff. So starting off, uh, Tim Drake actually came from a fairly wealthy family. They were kind of in the same tax bracket as Bruce Wayne and even lived, I want to say, in the same neighborhood as the original uh, Wayne Manor. But his life changed as a toddler, as a small boy, when his parents decided to take him to the Visiting Haley's Circus. Now, Tim's mother Janet was not sure about the circus, but his father Jack really wanted to bring 
baby Tim to this event. And it's here that Tim first meets the Flying Graysons. Uh, Dick Grayson, even as a young boy, basically tells Tim that he's going to dedicate tonight's performance to Tim. And this ended up being a really morbid dedication because, of course, this was the night that Dick Grayson's parents were murdered. As the crowd at large rushed out of the tent, Tim caught a quick glimpse of Bruce Wayne you know, basically tending to Dick Grayson. Later on, as he grew up, uh, he followed closely the adventures of Batman and Robin, and during a specific adventure where they were apprehending the Penguin, Tim witnessed Robin perform a quadruple somersault. A quadruple somersault. Now, Tim Drake, who had followed the Flying Graysons as a young, young boy, and then followed the adventures of batman and robin as a slightly older boy connected the dots and the idea that the only people in the world who could do a quadruple somersault were the flying graysons and putting two and two together he surmised that dick grayson was robin and because dick grayson was the ward of bruce wayne therein bruce wayne is batman and this is a pretty big deal, because up until this point, really nobody was able to deduce that Batman was Bruce Wayne. He became one of the first, if not just in the immediate Batman family, but in the wider DC universe, to discover that Batman is Bruce Wayne. And so through this, he followed their adventures, he was a fan, and he, of course, was able to tell when Robin went off and became Nightwing, and a new Robin showed up. And then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. No, everything changed with the death of Jason Todd. Finding out about this, you know, knowing that Bruce Wayne had taken on a new ward named Jason Todd, that Jason Todd had now died, Timothy, again, connected the dots and knew that Batman was without a Robin. And as time began to pass, Batman became more and more violent, more and more unstable, and really started to show the, just how badly the death of Jason Todd was affecting him. So Tim Drake came to Nightwing, came to Dick Grayson, and basically told him, Bruce needs your help, Batman needs his partner, and... At this point, Dick Grayson had really been kind of doing his own thing, going to college, uh, teaming up with the Teen Titans. But of course, because Dick Grayson is who he is, he went back to Gotham to try and help his mentor. Unfortunately, as Nightwing, not as Robin. And Tim, in all of his research, all of his fandom of Batman and Robin, was set on this idea that Batman needed a Robin. And after Nightwing just completely threw that idea under the bus again and again and again, Tim was forced to take matters into his own hands. This happened when both Bruce and Dick were essentially captured by Two-Face, and Tim Drake donned the original Robin costume with help from Alfred and was able to not just rescue Dick and Bruce, but also take down Two-Face. So following this, with the urging of both Nightwing and Alfred, that is, uh, I don't know if you could hear that, that is 
the uh, the cat that resides in this residence. His name is Churchill. Um, he's a big he's a big Tim Drake fan, big Robin fan. So um, following this, uh, Tim was convincing Batman that he could be Robin, but Batman wasn't sure, especially after the death of Jason Todd. So he took him on in kind of a trial basis and made sure that he was trained by not just Batman, but first by Alfred, then by Batman, and finally a kind of uh, a masterclass by Nightwing before he was ever allowed to wear the Robin costume. Unfortunately, right before the completion of his training, a villain captured Tim's parents during a trip to the Caribbean, because, you know, rich people take trips to the Caribbean, and basically forced them to drink water laced with poison. This killed Tim's mother and sent his father into a coma. So... Of course, Tim, because he's a 13-year-old kid, is now just incensed. He wants revenge. He is completely consumed with rage and tries to kill this villain, but is able to stop himself. And Batman, who was completely not sure about Tim going into it, was able to finally see that he's not Dick, he's not Jason, he is going to... He's going to be something more. He's going to be something greater. And after later saving both Batman and Vicky Vale and defeating the Scarecrow nearly single-handedly, Bruce finally gave Robin a new and update, or gave Tim a new and updated costume, officially deeming him worthy of being Robin. So this started a long career for for Tim Drake as Robin. Um, he went all over the map. There was even a, uh, a solo series for Robin. The first time that Robin ever got a solo miniseries was with Tim Drake kind of traveling the world, which culminated in Tim meeting and training under Lady Shiva, the deadliest fighter on the planet. And this is where he got his, uh, his famous collapsible bow staff, the one that really has always been kind of a uh, iconic part of his Robin tenure, and basically he was there to set himself apart from Jason and Dick. He wasn't the acrobat that Dick was, he wasn't the hot-headed uh, fighter that Jason was, but what he lacked in physical ability he more than made up for in his detective skills, and so that paired really well with Batman, and over the years, uh, Tim became one of the world's greatest detectives in his own right. Uh, even at one point, Ra's al Ghul, later on in his career, uh, call, started to call him Detective, which was a name that he had reserved only for Batman up until that point. Um, Tim was also there during the Nightfall event, where Batman was broken by Bane, his back was broken, and then uh, the rise of Jean-Paul Valley as Asbat, as real Batman, and also the return of Bruce Wayne, returning from his injury, taking back the Batman mantle, and then taking a sabbatical to find out what he wanted to do while Dick Grayson kind of filled in for Batman for a short time. This was a really cool thing because having Dick as Batman and Tim as Robin is very different than in modern day where Grant Morrison kind of put Dick Grayson with Damian Wayne. They had a very different, more brotherly relationship that was more kind of based on camaraderie. 
Uh, following this, of course, Batman returned to his role, and it was Bruce and Tim for a real long time. He was also the Robin on hand during the No Man's Land arc where an earthquake ravaged Gotham and the U.S. government basically made it a, uh, a black site where there was no people going in, no people going out. And this really tested his resolve with no outside help, uh, barely any help from his Young Justice pals that he had established with Bart Allen Impulse, Connor Kent Superboy, and Cassie Sands Mark Wonder Girl, and had one of his most defining moments during the Identity Crisis event, where uh, basically a bunch of the identities of superheroes and their loved ones were leaked out to the criminal underworld, and his father, Jack Drake, who had come out of a coma and was now kind of dealing with the idea of Robin, of uh, Tim Drake being Robin, even forcing him to retire for a short time, more on that later, uh, um, was killed by the original Captain Boomerang. And following this, Bruce Wayne officially adopted Tim, and they really became closer than ever. Tim was also there for the return of Jason Todd, both in the Hush storyline as well as his official return in the Under the Red Hood event, where, or I guess the original comic event was Under the Hood. The film was Under the Red Hood. But um, this culminated in the two having a climactic battle in the Hall of Fallen Titans in Titans Tower, where Jason showed up in his old Robin suit looking to pick a fight, and he kicked Jason's ass, or he kicked Tim's ass pretty bad, because Tim is not the fighter that Jason is. Uh, of course, after seeing this, and seeing Tim's resolve, Jason kind of gave him his blessing to continue on his Robin, and moved on with his life. Though, of course, they would see each other many, many times following this. Uh, during the Infinite Crisis arc, Tim lost his best friend, Connor Kent, as he died kind of fighting Superboy Prime during the climax of the event. And this really shook Tim uh, to the point that he even changed his costume, basically turning it from the old school red, green, and gold to a more just red and black to really honor his friend Connor Kent, whose own symbol and costume was you know black and red as well and then the next big event in his life was final crisis where uh batman seemingly died fighting dark side and this kicked off the whole battle for the cal event uh during this final crisis was also when tim donned the red robin costume for the first time and oh it was uh it was a big big moment for tim uh during the batman R.I.P. event. He was instrumental in helping take down the Black Glove organization and also briefly donned the old school Neil Adams Batman costume during the Battle for the Cal event uh, with him and Dick and the other hero members of the family going up against the gun-toting Jason Todd as what many fans refer to as Gatman who just was Batman with automatic weapons and it was terrible. Uh, following this, he started to really dig into the idea that Bruce was still alive. And so he went on a globe-hopping journey as Red Robin, 
essentially leaving the Robin mantle for Damian Wayne to pick up. Now, I'm going to include his Red Robin tenure because from here on out, whether he was wearing that costume or whether he was wearing his original Robin costume, uh, he was referred to as Red Robin. So I'm going to continue to go on with his story. So Tim traveled the world as Red Robin, you know, coming into conflict with Ra's al Ghul and others, and finally was able to find enough clues to prove that Bruce Wayne was alive. And shortly after this, of course, Bruce made his return during the return of Bruce Wayne's story. And uh, pretty much this was the status quo where Batman was Bruce Wayne, but Batman was also Dick Grayson. Uh, Robin was Damian Wayne and Tim was Red Robin until the new 52. And in the new 52, uh, Tim Drake was never Robin. Tim Drake was always Red Robin, which is dumb. It's just dumb. So I'm going to continue to call him just Robin. Um, in this, uh, updated story, uh, Tim Drake became the Robin for the Teen Titans in the New 52 Teen Titans. Um, that happened. <laughs> the run itself, I don't think, was super good. Uh, I picked it up and paid attention to it strictly because it had Tim Drake as part of the team. Uh, following this, he really kind of hit his stride during the Rebirth arc, where he joined up with the quote-unquote The Batman um, in Detective Comics, joining up again with uh, Cassandra Kane, with his on-again, off-again girlfriend Stephanie Brown, uh, Batwoman newcomer Clayface, and Batman as they tried to realize Tim's dream of a team governing the battle against crime in Gotham. Um, the big climax of his story during this was when uh, the colony, which was run by Ulysses, an old enemy of his back before the New 52, uh, as well as uh, Batwoman's father, Jacob Kane, released, you know, hundreds of thousands of drones onto Gotham to take out every villain ever. But this didn't just apply to the supervillains. This also applied to people like white-collar villain or white-collar criminals, people who had a shoddy criminal record. Anybody who had ever committed a crime, these drones were set to take out. Tim, using his uh, technical wizardry, reprogrammed all of the drones to focus on one location and one target. Him. So Tim was basically beset upon by these hundreds of drones, hundreds of thousands of drones, and seemingly was completely annihilated to save Gotham. However, Tim was plucked out of that moment just as those drones attacked by a Mr. Oz, a mysterious Mr. Oz, and was kept, quote-unquote, off the board because... Apparently, Tim Drake has a bigger role to play in the greater DC universe. We haven't really hit that point yet with him, I don't think. But um, hopefully we do get there. Uh, he was, of course, able to escape this prison along with a parallel future version of himself, the Tim Drake from the Titans of Tomorrow, who was a, another gun-toting Batman who had basically turned Gotham into a uh, 
martial law military or a militarized utopia where basically batman was the law and batman was tim drake after supposedly uh changing his future changing his fate tim drake kind of retired for a bit because he wanted to focus on his life figure out what was right for him and was seemingly later on brought out of that retirement by the reemergence of young justice which brings him up to today and if you are not reading the current young justice book do yourself a favor pick that up so that is tim drake's long career as robin however as we mentioned earlier, there was a brief period where Tim was forced to retire by his father, Jack Drake. And I know what you're wondering. What happened to the role of Robin while Tim Drake was sidelined, was retired? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked because this is where we talk about Stephanie Brown. I kind of left her out of Tim's career, even though she is a big part. Uh, they've been off-again, on-again lovers throughout pretty much both of their entire comic book history. Uh, Stephanie Brown made her first appearance in Detective Comics number 647 in August of 1992, and uh, she is the daughter of the Clue Master. Stephanie Brown briefly picked up the role of Robin following this uh, kind of retirement, the semi-retirement that Jack Drake forced upon his son. Um, at this point, Stephanie Brown had really established herself as the vigilante spoiler. You know, spoiler, clue master, spoiling clues, that whole thing. And uh, her and Tim had been in an off-again, on-again relationship throughout the years. Uh, during the event of War Games, however, uh, of course, again, Tim was retired by his father. And Stephanie Brown wanted to take up the mantle as Robin. She made a homemade costume, went to the Batcave, and demanded that Batman train her to be Robin. Uh, Batman was not about this. He was not a fan of this idea. But Stephanie was bold, she was brash, she was loud, and she made her voice heard that she could do it. So, Batman trained her for an intense several months, basically trying to give her a crash course on everything that he had taught Rob, that he had taught uh, Tim Drake. And unfortunately, even though she was trained, even though she was given an official costume, and even though she went on a few missions with Batman, Stephanie was prone to disobeying orders. And after she disobeyed his orders on two separate missions, Batman fired her. However, Stephanie was not going to take this lying down. She was not going to allow Batman to fire her, and so she stole one of his back-of-the-room, more elaborate plans to deal with all of Gotham's criminal underworld in a single night. However, this plan hinged upon the involvement of one Matches Malone. And if you know anything about Batman, you know that Matches Malone is one of the aliases that Batman uses when he goes undercover into the Gotham underworld. And when Stephanie Brown found out that there was no Matches Malone to help her, everything went from bad to worse, and everything escalated. A citywide gang war erupted in Gotham between all of the different gang leaders and stephanie was ultimately captured by black mask who was one of the big players in this and she was brutally tortured 
to get information out of her about Batman. Stephanie was luckily able to escape and made her way to the clinic of one Leslie Tompkins, but unfortunately died from her injuries on the hospital table as Bruce Wayne looked on. Later on, of course, uh, we found out that Stephanie's death was faked, and she was given a new identity in hopes to kind of get a normal life, but this didn't work out, and as of the continuity of the new 52 whether or not you know everything's happened or not happened uh she was never robin so that i guess we can chalk up into another alternate timeline though it was kind of the past time timeline though it's not anymore it's confusing again comics and so we come to our final robin on the list many people's favorite robin the current wearer of the robin mantle this is damien Wayne. So Damian Wayne, the idea of Damian Wayne, made his first appearance in 1987 in the graphic novel Batman's Son of the Demon. Um, this really isn't technically his first appearance uh, because this story was later deemed non-canon and uh, really wasn't brought up again until Grant Morrison took the ideas from that story and brought him back for Batman number 655 in 2006 to kick off the Batman and Son storyline. Uh, Damian Wayne was basically a test tube baby taken from the DNA of both uh, Bruce Wayne and Talia al Ghul and artificially grown into a... Typically, it's like 10 to 12-year-old child. Uh, he was then trained as his as he grew up by Talia in the ways of the League of Assassins. And totally unbeknownst to Batman, by the way, um, was finally brought to uh, Batman as a young child. And basically, Talia said, this is your son. He's a cold-blooded killer. Have fun. So... <laughs> Damien was trouble from the very beginning. He was spoiled. He was uh, entitled. He was incredibly violent. Uh, Damien is basically a League of Assassins ninja. He knows all of those things. He is a skilled killer. And he, on his first appearance, he battles Tim Drake in the, uh, in the Batcave for the honor of becoming Robin because he wants to replace Tim and nearly kills Tim in their first encounter. Following this, after both a falling out with the League of Assassins as well as the supposed death of Bruce Wayne, Damien was brought in by Dick Grayson to become the new Robin and kicked off the whole Batman Reborn uh, storyline with him as Robin and Dick Grayson as Batman. They clashed a bunch at first because in many ways Dick Grayson is Batman's true son, while Damian Wayne is Batman's actual son. And they battled both physically and in ideology because, of course, Dick Grayson is Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne is a cold-blooded killer. Churchill is also a fan of uh, Damian Wayne. Churchill, do you know if you like Tim Drake more than Damian Wayne or either way? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Okay, okay, so he, it looks like he's a Damian Wayne fan. That makes sense, because uh, Churchill Churchill would identify with a cold-blooded killer who's kind of an entitled dick. 
Um, so anyway, um, Damian Wayne would, of course, later on uh, warm up to Dick Grayson and they would take on a brotherly role with each other. And for me personally, my favorite Batman and Robin pairing is Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. It flips the whole dark brooding Batman and happy go lucky Robin idea on its head, and they really get to we really get to see a different dynamic between the dynamic duo. So as this went on, Damian was able to kind of temper his killer instinct and was able to learn that he is able to take in criminals instead of just outright killing them. As the new dynamic duo, both Damien and Dick fought off the likes of Professor Pig, um, the Joker, as well as the recently uh, returned Red Hood, who had his own kind of superhero spin on the role along with a sidekick named Scarlet. Uh, later on, he was witness to the return of Bruce Wayne, who took on the Batman role once again. And when the New 52 happened, uh, Dick went back to his uh, Nightwing role, and Batman took over the main Gotham Batman role again, which was strange, because Batman did not know how to deal with Damien, because pretty much once uh, Damien became Robin, Bruce was out of the picture, and vice versa. So there was they basically had to rebuild that relationship, which is an interesting story as well, and took place in the amazing uh, Tomasi and Gleason Batman and Robin run. Also, during this time, uh, he was ultimately killed by a villain known as the Heretic, who we come to find out is technically Damien's little brother, aged into adulthood. Uh, he was part of the same kind of cloning batch of Damien that Talia was overseeing, and this clone ended up killing Damien with a sword through the chest in the uh, final issue of Batman Incorporated of the New 52. So that was a big deal. That was technically the second time or I guess technically, if you count Stephanie Brown, the third time a Robin had died. And this really sent Bruce into a spiral. That is, of course, until Darkseid steals Damien's body, along with his, uh, his minion, Glorious Godfrey, to uh, basically take Damien's body to Apocalypse. I can't remember exactly why they took his body specifically, but uh, Batman basically donned the hellbat armor which is super cool and defeated dark side if only momentarily and was able to return damien's body back to earth with batman also picking up a chaos shard he uses the chaos shard to revive damien and damien is back in action and even has superman's powers for a short time before they of course fade uh following this damien ran across during the uh rebirth event uh he came into contact with john kent who is now uh superman's son and they formed the super sons group and that pretty much takes you up to today uh damien also joined the teen titans and is kind of running the show over in the teen titans book so check that out if you're interested in that but that is the full and complete history of the robins um 
we are well over an hour at this point into this show. So uh, thank you for going through this with me. I'm going to do a quick wrap-up for them, kind of going over our Robin Royale and who I think is the best Robin and the worst Robin. We are going to go ahead and rank them real quick. I'm going to just kind of rapid-fire these rankings so we can move on to the next segments in the podcast. And at number six, I've got Stephanie Brown. Basically, just because her role, her uh, her tenure as Robin was so short-lived, she was really ineffective, disobeyed Batman all the time, and ultimately, uh, she caused a bad situation, the crowding Gotham, to get worse by escalating it into the War Games event, and ultimately caused her own demise, unfortunately. Uh, Number five, we have Jason Todd. I know, I know for you Jason Todd lovers, but we're looking just at the career as Robin. Basically, the whole deal with Jason is that he wasn't Dick Grayson. People latched on to Dick Grayson as a character, and when you set up bar that high, having a character like this is just a, uh, a non-starter. Uh, he challenged Bruce both in positive ways and negative ways. He was brash, he was impulsive, he smoked in the Batmobile, and quite possibly killed a guy as Robin. He was, I would say, probably the most unlikable of all the Robins, even Stephanie Brown. Uh, He was the most unlikable, and uh, again, just like Stephanie Brown, caused his own demise. At number four, we have Carrie Kelly. Uh, She was, the thing I love about Carrie Kelly, she was bold and she was new. She was a firecracker. She was a good soldier, unfortunately, with the constraints of the dark knight returns because it was in essence really a bruce wayne batman story we didn't really get a whole lot of uh carrie kelly's pov uh she kind of suffers from a lack of depth i refuse to look at uh dark knight strikes again or even really dark knight the master race because neither of those were story-wise as good as the original dark knight returns story and because the story was written in the late 80s Uh, Some of her vernacular really is showing its age. The story itself, while being an incredible story, really is showing its age now, you know, some 20-odd years on. But uh, she's still great. I think she's still a great Robin. I would be all for her coming into the main continuity. She was there for a little bit in the beginning of the New 52, but they kind of dropped her. So who knows? Uh, number three, we have Damian Wayne. Uh, he is up this high for a couple reasons. He is, of course, the true son of Batman. He is the blood relative of Batman, the only Robin to do so. Uh, he has the most life experience, I think, out of all of them. He is the deadliest of the Robins. He has been a member of the League of Assassins. He has been dead. He has been imbued with superpowers. He has... Uh, been part of the Super Sons, the Baby World's Finest team, and he is now leading the Teen Titans. So he is setting up quite a career for himself as Robin. Uh, unfortunately, he is arrogant, and uh, he is one of the most unlikable Robins. I'm not a huge fan of him, as you heard earlier. Uh, our cat Churchill is a fan of him, so he has his fans. He definitely has his fans, but uh, I don't really see him above the top two now the top two changed a couple times for me i'll let you know that right now they changed a couple times but after reviewing everything doing the notes going back reading some of their stuff number two ultimately for me the number two robin is dick grayson 
Dick Grayson was, of course, the first Robin. He set the bar. He was a perfect contrast for Batman, being the light bubbly uh, force against Batman's dark and brooding force. But for me, when it comes to Dick Grayson as Robin, uh, Dick Grayson was always destined to be something more, just as a character. Like I said earlier, he is the greatest comic book character ever created, um, but he was always destined to outgrow the Robin mantle. And we see that with his success as Nightwing. He's been Nightwing for almost 20 years himself, maybe more than 20 years. Um, And... Yeah, more than 20 years, because it was 1984 where he became Nightwing. So he's been... It's 25 years. So he's been 25 years as Nightwing and is going strong. And that role for him is is perfect. Uh, I personally loved his role as Batman. I loved him as Batman. I wish we had gotten more stories with him as Batman. But um, ultimately, his role as Robin was always to lay the groundwork and to provide that initial relationship that people could build upon in later incarnations of the role. So, of course, that brings me to our number one, which is, of course, Tim Drake. And this is for a couple reasons. First of all, Tim Drake chose this life. This wasn't imposed upon him. The uh, whole Bruce Wayne revealing his identity and kind of drafting him into the war like Dick Grayson or really doing the same thing for Jason Todd, drafting him into this life as Robin didn't happen to Tim. Tim found out he was the one who discovered Batman's identity as well as Robin's. He was the one who went in and made his case to be Robin and ultimately I think became the greatest wearer of that role he instead of contrasting bruce really compliments him he's also a detective who can hold his own in a fight and i think technically and i'm gonna look at this in my own headcanon as opposed to uh i don't know another word for it so facts uh he i think in continuity has the longest tenure as robin seeing as how he's still rolling today um He was also, I think, the biggest contributor to the evolution of the Robin role. He took it from the happy-go-lucky gymnast into a true apprentice of Batman. And at this point, we're looking on, you know, 20 years of Tim Drake as Robin. I think he really defines the role of Robin, whether it's his aesthetic, the... uh, original tim drake robin costume was used in the batman the animated series for uh dick grayson's robin so that really i think tells you that tim drake is iconic in this role he is robin and you cannot tell me otherwise though if you would like to tell me otherwise feel free to let me know on instagram or twitter at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod or through email because i'm an old man and i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com that is going to do it for the uh majority of the episode the big uh main event we're now going to move into the weekly review followed by the comics countdown as well as the continuing rankings of the mcu but for now let's jump on over to the weekly review
And now it's time for this week's weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And for our first foray into the weekly review series, we are doing the Doom Patrol live-action series that is on the DC Universe streaming service. Uh, And this week's episode is episode 8, entitled Danny Patrol. So... As the name suggests, if you have any kind of knowledge about the Doom Patrol, this episode featured the debut, in live-action form, sort of, of Danny the Street. He is a longtime Doom Patrol uh, character. Supporting character, helps out the Doom Patrol from time to time, also provides a base of operations every now and then, and Danny the Street is literally a street, a sentient street that can pretty much move at will uh it's basically like a one block depending sometimes it's more sometimes it's less uh is able to generate like stores and is basically a sentient uh piece of land that can teleport from place to place and in this episode it manifested itself as kind of a uh a genderqueer haven for all of the Dannyzens or the citizens of Danny Street. And what I really liked, I would say, I was talking to somebody about this today, this might just be the best episode of the series so far. And it really just leans heavy into just how weird the Tube Patrol can be. Um, it's definitely one of the stranger episodes. If you dropped someone into this, you know, with this being their first Doom Patrol episode, it would probably throw them for a hard loop. But uh, yeah, this is a great episode. This is especially if you have watched the other seven episodes before this. This episode really pays off a lot of the uh, kind of intertwining threads throughout the show. Uh, this episode also focuses mostly on uh larry trainer and vic stone that being uh negative man and cyborg respectively and ultimately what this episode is is it's a tale of acceptance uh larry has never felt you know comfortable in his own skin and since he became cyborg neither has victor so this was a really nice episode about accepting who you are with the good and the bad, all the stuff wraps up into who you are, and you should be proud of that, regardless of where you're coming from. Um, I loved the uh, the singing scene where uh, Larry and the kind of the proprietor of uh, the speakeasy burlesque show, Maura Lee Corrupt, uh, sing. I think it's like a Kelly Clarkson song. I can't remember the name of it, but. Um, yeah, it was just such a fun scene, and then to kind of cap off that scene with it cutting back to Larry, and none of that happened, it was just in his head, and him going, I don't sing, and just walking off, there was such a sadness to Larry Trainer, and I really like how they've been steadily placing more emphasis on him. He wasn't really the prime focus for the first few episodes, but as we're getting to like the midpoint and into the home stretch here for the season, they've really started hammering home uh, Larry Trainer, and I really, really enjoy that. He's fantastic. Matt Bomer has been doing an excellent job as the character. And having Victor Stone, who is also trying to figure out his own life, uh, I think is really cool. Having him there with 
Of course, he's still focused on trying to find Niles and looking to Danny to help him. And once Danny finds out that uh, Mr. Nobody's involved, Danny's just like, nope, sorry, I can't help you. But uh, Danny does end up giving Vic a clue, and that story is going to continue on into the next episode. We also got a B-plot with uh, Jane, Rita, and Cliff introducing one of Jane's many personalities, Karen, who is completely just hopped up on romantic comedies and is just super manipulative. She has the ability to kind of persuade other people, so that was really cool. It's a great great power set for a character in this kind of uh, environment, narratively, and also production-wise. So I really like that. Uh, the star for this episode for me was uh, Miss Morally Corrupt, uh, starting off as Agent Smith and really trying to, really kind of finding herself and finding herself as a leader in the group of Dannysons and on Danny the Street. I loved her performance. She was fantastic, pitch perfect, and overall, this show, this episode especially, was so sweet, so heartfelt, but this show continues to just get better and better all the time. Every episode tops the previous one, and I am so happy that the show is as good as it is, but at the same time, I'm so disappointed that so many people don't get to watch this because they don't have the DC Universe app or for whatever reason because this is such a good show. If you enjoy comic books, if you enjoy weird, quirky comic books, even if you don't, even if you're just like a by-the-numbers comic book fan but you're open to stuff like this, this is definitely something you need to be checking out. You need to jump on. Especially if, like me, you were a little disappointed by Titans, this takes all of the promise and the potential of Titans and turns it sideways, and really just becomes this unexpected hit. I definitely think you should jump on. Uh, we're eight episodes in. We're getting close. We're heading into the uh, final stretch for the season. And overall, this episode was just fantastic. Again, this might be the best episode of the season. So definitely check this out. And uh, let me know what you think of this episode. If you've been following it along, if you haven't jumped on yet. And uh, if you haven't jumped on yet, let me know why. I'd love to know. I'd love to have that conversation. So, um, yeah, that's it for this week's weekly review. And we are going to proceed right on to this week's Comics Countdown. And here we are at this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. Typically it's five comics, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, I'll be giving you the title of the comic, the creative team behind it, as well as a brief synopsis. And of course, with every synopsis, you get a synopsis voice. If you would like to recommend a synopsis voice, feel free to request one on Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P-O-D on Instagram or Twitter, or feel free to send emails as well. And uh, this week we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. We've got six books. And you know, this is one of those few times where it's actually an even spread of DC and Marvel books. This is three DC, three Marvel. So um, yeah, we'll just go ahead and jump into the first book, which is Titans number 36, written by Dan Abnett with art by Bruno Redondo. This is the final issue of Titans. It has been a long run. They have gone 
pretty much I think as far as they can go as a book which is of course why DC is bringing the title to an end and I kind of feel bad because this is not what the uh, promise of the Titans book coming out of Rebirth was supposed to be but Dan Abnett has done I think about as good a job as you can do trying to uh, get this team together with basically a mishmash hodgepodge uh, cast of characters that he didn't start with and that the uh, the book didn't start with the book currently has raven steel the new uh, younger steel uh, miss martian donna troy beast boy and kyle rayner on the team and donna troy is the only person on the team who was originally there from the start of the book so um yeah it's it's sad it's kind of it bums me out thinking about it um i think adding kyle was a good idea because they needed kind of another heavy hitter on the team and uh as weird as this sounds for me to say uh they needed another guy on the team so i of course i'm sad that the book is ending i hope i'm hoping all of the characters in this book uh land on their feet and find other books but for now let's jump into that uh, synopsis into the bleed finale it's all been building to this witness the battle for the fate of the entire multiverse as our heroes tackle mother blood and her armies of unearth mother's plan to use the bleed to spread her power throughout every corner of the fabric of reality has reached its zenith and she's pulling out all the stops to see to it that the titans fail in stopping her but even with Raven's soul self reunited, can the team rescue their heavy hitters Kyle Rayner and Steel before it's too late? Don't miss this melee of multiversal mayhem. So yeah, if you have not been following the book, that synopsis sounds bonkers. But um, yeah, I would say if nothing else, uh, this is a book that deserves to be picked up as it's the final issue. And uh, it's worth your time. It's worth your time. Another book that I think is well worth your time is Dead Man Logan number 6 out of 12. We are officially at the halfway point of this series, and uh, things have been really ramping up. Uh, the book has been solid so far, written by Ed Brisson with art by Mike Henderson and art by the incomparable Declan Shelby. But I've been loving every issue. Uh, I was kind of surprised that they wrapped up what was kind of the lead-in story so quickly. Um, basically the whole premise was that, uh, the villains were kind of starting to mobilize just like in Old Man Logan's original timeline and Mysterio was involved and the premise of the story was Logan was going to hunt down Mysterio. But after issue five, everything was kind of, you know, wrapped up with a nice bow. So this issue is kind of, uh, Old Man Logan saying goodbye to everybody before he heads back into the wasteland and I'm just not exactly sure what exactly is going to happen um we do still have an entire back half of uh of this series six more issues after this that are going to really dive deep i think into the history as well as the ideology of old man logan he is on borrowed time he is dying and um this issue especially the cover is possibly teal kind of teasing a uh a certain chance meeting with another clawed mutant. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis. 
Because you demanded it. Wolverine has returned. Attended weddings, handled infinity gems, but now his greatest challenge is at hand. Himself. So yeah, this is this is teasing uh, Old Man Logan running into present day Logan. They haven't met each other. Uh, present day Logan pretty much died right before the Secret Wars thing kicked off and dead man logan has kind of been the main line wolverine since then uh with of course laura kinney being the actual wolverine but um yeah i'm really interested to see where this goes uh next up we have batman number 68 uh written by tom king with art by amanda connor filling in at the near the end of uh the nightmares run and we are we have made it we've made it through the nightwing nightwing we made it through the nightmares arc with tom king and we are hopefully going to start to get some answers uh about thomas wayne what he's doing in the cave where all this is going why the nightmares has uh been plaguing batman and hopefully we start to get some answers starting next issue but this one seems kind of like a a detour but um to see what i mean let's jump into the synopsis Batman is making his way to the end of his nightmares, but his unseen enemy has a few more tricks up his sleeve. It's time once again to stick a knife into the Cape Crusader's broken heart, letting the groom that could have been peer in on the bachelorette, or should that be catchelorette, party that never was. Artist Amanda Connor rejoins the Bat family for this month's special story, because who else are you going to invite? to a shindig like this so yeah uh this seems like a pretty big detour we're looking in on i guess kind of like a uh what is it a uh, a christmas carol style story where batman peers in on the uh the christmas past the weddings past of i guess a possible uh bachelorette party with catwoman i'm assuming lois will be there uh, Poison Ivy, we'll see whoever else shows up in this issue, but um, I'm hoping that this does still kind of tie back into the Nightmare story, especially with the last time we saw Selina as part of the Nightmares. She had just dropped the bomb that um, she had lied about her reasoning for leaving Bruce at the altar. So I am really hoping that this has a bigger uh, implication on the story. Next up, a story that has had many implications, is uh, Invaders number 4, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Carlos Magno. Uh, this book's been great. This book has been incredible. Uh, we are starting to unravel the mystery of Namor. Uh, Namor has been really fulfilling this Mad King role throughout the first three issues. You know, seeing being basically being advised by the ghost of his dead friend, and now we're gonna start to see his secret history, possibly with Charles Xavier. So let's jump into the synopsis. Everything you know about the King of Atlantis is wrong. This issue, the secret history of Namor. So yeah, short and sweet, simple. Um, I'm really excited. Pretty much what we know about Namor is that he fought in World War II as part of the Invaders with uh, Cap, Bucky, and the original Human Torch. And then post that, 
Um, we don't know a whole lot. The next time we see him, he is kind of suffering from amnesia. He doesn't really remember a whole lot. And then he pretty quickly takes his role once again as King of Atlantis uh, as part of the whole... Um, he's really instrumental in bringing Cap back into the mainland continuity. So I'm interested to see where they go with this. Uh, it's been an incredible book so far. Chip Zdarsky has really woven... A really interesting and intriguing kind of thriller with a mystery about uh, not just Namor's plans but his whole mental state behind it all so I'm excited another book I'm very excited about is detective comics number 1001 written by Peter J Tomasi with art by Brad Walker this is the start of the new uh, kind of the new era going into detective comics I'm sincerely kind of hoping that the uh that that era coming out of detective comics 1000 is better than the era that we are currently in post action comics 1000 um i feel pretty good because tomasi is an amazing writer he does a great job and he really seems to have a uh, a big plan in mind for the arkham knight and for batman in this series so i'm really excited i'm a little you know i'm a little disappointed that uh monkey isn't staying on doug monkey was doing all of the issues leading up to detective comics 1000 but now we are getting brad walker who is another great all-star artist and i'm really excited to see uh what the arkham knight can do and how he's going to be affecting the dc universe or at least the bat corner of that universe so let's jump into the synopsis after 1000 issues you'd think batman could finally have a break but no as a new era dawns he's facing the most dangerous threat of his career the Arkham Knight has arrived in Gotham City with an entire round table of deadly allies, and their first encounter will leave Batman shaken to his core. So yeah, I, I find it really interesting that we took this character, who was the Arkham Knight from the Arkham Knight video game, who was very much just a palette-swapped Red Hood, both in his... Uh, in his fighting, and his tactics, and they are really leaning heavily into the knight aspect of him. He's got a round table, he's got a big-ass broadsword. Um, it almost kind of, for me, leans very um, Asriel in Order of the Sa Order of Saint Dumas. I am interested to see if that ends up being a connection. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to the story. Um, I don't know what the identity of this character is going to be, if he's going to be a completely all-new character, if he's a character that we've heard of before, but either way, I am all-in on this book. And finally, a book that I am completely all-in and have been throughout the entire duration is Winter Soldier number 5 of 5. That's right, this is it. This is the final issue of, Winter, of the Winter Soldier miniseries. Written by Kyle Higgins with art by Rod Race. Pace, Rees, ah, um, this book has been fantastic. This book really has been fantastic, and I am sad to see it go. I'm hoping that we get more stories, both with 
uh, Bucky Barnes as well as with this team, this creative team with Bucky Barnes. Uh, Kyle Higgins seems really keen on continuing the story, so I'm hoping that he gets the opportunity. Uh, I really also love RJ as a character, and I don't want to see him kind of just relegated to the story. I want to see him interacting with more people. I want to see him show up with the champions and be, you know, hey, I am a cold-blooded killer who was brought up basically to be an assassin. Put me on your team. So, um, yeah, again, I'm sad to see it go. I really hope that we get more of this, but for what we have gotten, it's been a great series. So let's jump into the synopsis. Bucky and RJ must come to terms with RJ's new life and Bucky's brash decision. Will RJ accept the truth, or has Bucky lost him for good? An ending filled with answers and regret. So yeah, um, spoilers for last issue, but um, at the end of the issue, RJ's biological dad, who was a you know, two-bit criminal and total loser, ended up um, getting into a fistfight with... Uh, Bucky, which is never a good idea because he wanted to enlist RJ in this uh, robbery and ended up um, throughout through the tussle he ended up dying so Once RJ finds out about this you can only imagine there has to be some kind of climactic fight And I'm really hoping that this isn't the end of RJ as a character again but um, yeah, that is it for this week's uh, Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Titans number 36, Dead Man Logan number 6, Batman number 68, Invaders number 4, Detective Comics number 1001, and Winter Soldier number 5 of 5. If there are any books that you think I should be picking up, if there are any books you think I missed on this list, feel free to let me know. I always love discovering new comics, I love getting recommendations, and I would love to know what you're reading. So yeah, feel free to let me know all of that, but for now, we move on to the final segment of our podcast, which is the continuing rankings of the MCU films. Uh, this week we've got numbers 11, 10, and 9. We're getting into those single digits. So stay tuned after the jump for the continuing ranking of the MCU. And with that, it is now time for the final segment of this week's episode, which is the continuing rankings of the MCU. This week, we've got numbers 11, 10, and 9. We are, of course, ranking them from 21 all the way to 1. To recap, we had Thor The Dark World at number 21, Incredible Hulk at number 20, number 19 was Iron Man 2, number 18 was Iron Man 3, number 17 was Thor, number 16 was Doctor Strange, number 15 was Ant-Man and the Wasp, number 14 was Avengers Age of Ultron, number 13 is Captain America the First Avenger, and number 12 is Captain Marvel. So we are jumping right into number 11, which is the one that started it all. It is the very first Iron Man. Now for me, this, again, this film, uh, this is what started the whole thing. This is what kicked off the MCU. This is what got the ball rolling. And this is what introduced us to Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. Uh, for me, it's 
still incredibly watchable. It's still a fun movie, and a lot of that is attributed to Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. This is where we met Tony Stark, or at least the Tony Stark that we kind of now know, because up until this point, Tony Stark wasn't really... I would say wasn't really uh, above B-list when it came to the comics. He'd had some good stories. They were gearing up for uh, Civil War because this film was going to kind of put him over the top when it came to popularity. And um, this film really redefined Tony Stark in the films and animation and comics going forward. This is where we got that basis. Uh, we also got the first looks at uh, Rhodey and Pepper, even though uh, this version of James Rhodes wouldn't be sticking around. Uh, I still thought that Terrence Howard did a great job as Rhodey, even if ultimately he didn't really get to do a whole lot when it comes to the story. Uh, and of course, Gwyneth Paltrow as uh, Pepper Potts is great, and she's continued to carry on with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. The big thing for me and I think the thing that brings it ultimately down to this level is uh, Obadiah Stane, the villain um, he starts out great he really does, he has layers, he has depth um, he does get a little mustache twirling at times but he is so good and Jeff Bridges does such a great job with him that it's really disappointing that for the finale, which is ultimately a little bit on the weaker side, he ends up becoming a, another big gray villain. Um, he is what kind of kicks off this tradition of superhero movies where their villain, ultimately the final battle, is just a mirror version of himself or herself. And it's uh, it sucks. It sucks. It's unfortunate that we couldn't get a finale with a little bit more depth. And... After rewatching it, the film is kind of showing its age. The uh, the CGI isn't up to par to what we have today, but even for that, it still looks really good. Um, the soundtrack is killer. Again, Tony Stark really makes this entire movie. So, for those reasons, it is sitting pretty comfortably at number eleven. At number ten, we have Ant Man, and I know, I know, Ant Man beats out the first Iron Man. It's crazy, but. For me, Ant-Man really, just like Iron Man, is sold by its lead. Paul Rudd is the most relatable and likable leading character, I think, in any of the MCU movies. He's just instantly likable, even though he's at times not a great person. He immediately gets you on his team. You want him to succeed. You want him to uh, get time with his daughter. You want him to find a job and when he kind of happens upon the ant-man suit you want nothing but good things for him what i like about this film is that it's something different at this point in the mcu we didn't really have the kind of stranglehold on the comedy aspect that it does today um guardians of the galaxy was still relatively new we had just come off of age of ultron which was darker and ultimately not as successful as the first avengers movie and this was just kind of like uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp for Infinity War. This was a nice little palate cleanser because it was a condensed... Well, not condensed, like a uh, an isolated story. You could watch this and not have anything from any of the other movies really uh, 
in the back of your mind to enjoy this. It was isolated, it was contained, and it was just a great time, and it was a heist comedy. So you get all the heist aspects. I love heist movies. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, unfortunately, it does have kind of a weak villain. Uh, Yellow Jacket is just like, as we were talking about just a second ago, um, the mirror version of Ant-Man. And though the final uh, battle is very inventive, I love the uh, Ant-Man riding the train into Yellow Jacket and then it zooms out and it's just, you know, little Thomas, the tank engine toy, like just knocking itself over on the uh, little toy train tracks. Um, overall, uh, I think his name is Darren Cross or something like that. Um, he just, he didn't work for me. He was a little, uh, he could have been better. Uh, what did work for me, though, was uh, Hope and Hank. Uh, they are fantastic. Evangeline and Lily is fantastic. We talked about this during the uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. But this is really what set up Evangeline Lily to take on that character of the Wasp in the sequel. And Hank, like I said in the, uh, in the Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, part, he came across kind of off to me in this film but taking both this and the sequel in mind he works he works for the character he works for his relationship with scott and overall it's just it's good and overall the film itself is very fun um whether that's you know the cast with scott's crew with some of the uh really funny quotes the whole uh baskin robbins knows everything and the action sequences are so inventive. They really take advantage of the fact that Ant-Man can get extremely small. He hadn't been able to uh, grow into Giant Man yet. That's for the next film, for Civil War. But I just I thought that they were so inventive with what they did with him here, and it made me really excited to see how he would be integrated into films later on. But besides that, the film itself does have kind of a by the numbers plot. A, if you've seen any heist movie before, you've seen it. Um, if you've seen any of the MCU films, you've kind of seen it too. This just had its own unique flavor and brought that different dimension to those films. So overall, I really like it, and that's why it is at the number 10 spot. And at number 9, we are breaking into the single digits here. Number 9 is Black Panther. And the biggest thing for me when it comes to Black Panther, because I remember watching it for the first couple times and thinking, you know, this is, you know, top five material. This is great. This is a great movie. And it is. It is a fantastic movie. But set up against the rest of the MCU, um, it had to, you know, slide back a couple spots. However, this film is incredible at world building. This film really takes you into the world of Wakanda, the world of really the earth of MC of the MCU just keeps feeling bigger and bigger with every film and I really enjoy that aspect of it um, T'Challa is an incredible lead Killmonger is a fantastic villain even Claw is really really great Andy Serkis's Claw is fantastic I just one negative I do have with it is that I wish he had stuck around for longer he was a great villain he was you know your kind of traditional uh, MCU villain, but I liked that about him. And he was kooky, he was weird, and Andy Serkis had such a, uh, a charisma about him in the role. I just, 
I really enjoyed it, and I really wanted to get more of him in the film. So that's all the good stuff. Uh, however, for uh, negative stuff, the film does have some pacing issues. Uh, there is a good, like, there's a long, there's long stretches of time between each action sequence, and that was a big criticism of the film when it first came out. And then ultimately, uh, even though Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan, is a great villain, he's an incredible villain, the final fight between the two is, you know, stuff we've seen before, where the hero faces a villain who is his mirror in every single way, and their whole fight is in this, you know, dark tunnel, where they're, yeah, they have the, um, the vibranium minds basically as their backdrop but it's dark it felt just unnecessary and it felt like the battle up top would have been a better place for it where right in the middle of like the war zone between uh the against uh mbaku's tribe and all the tribesmen who had sided with killmonger i just think that battle could have been done differently but all that being said this film does succeed and triumph really in thematic storytelling the whole idea of a king who doesn't really see himself as a king really kind of stepping into the role when his kingdom is threatened um all of the the really uh what i thought was a poignant message through the film uh whether that was inside the film or outside of the film the film had a message inside of the film in that um the world is changing and we need to embrace it instead of run from it uh the film or the message outside of the film where this is a big deal this is a mcu film this is a superhero film with a primarily almost completely african-american cast and that cannot be overlooked and it succeeded it really succeeded it's an oscar worthy film it is an Oscar award-winning film now. So overall, I just, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a wonderful companion piece to the MCU, and it is definitely worth your time. So that is going to do it for this week's MCU rankings. To recap, we have at number 11, the original Iron Man, number 10, Ant-Man, and number 9, Black Panther. Tune in next week for numbers 8, 7, and 6. We are hitting the home stretch, folks. I am super excited to talk about uh, the rest of the movies in this list. And let me know what you think of the rankings so far. I would love to see how you, uh, if you disagree, if you agree, what your thoughts are, where these movies would rank up. And I would love to compare lists because I love getting other people's uh, perspectives on this. So feel free to do all of that, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, through email. And yeah, that's going to do it for this week. Next week, uh, right now, as it stands, we are just two weeks out of uh, Endgame. It is coming up quick, and I am super excited. But um, yeah, that's going to do it. And quick note, quick side note, I want to thank you. I'm sure you can hear I'm a little stuffed up. Uh, the allergies here in LA have been on fire. Uh, wind has been kicking up pollen all over the place, so I've had to stop and re-record multiple segments, um, and I had to completely 
uh, discard the first like 30 minutes of recording that I did on Monday. So thank you for uh, listening all the way through. I appreciate it. Um, we are checking along. I'm really happy with where the podcast is at. I just got business cards. I'm really excited about business cards. Um, if you would like to have a business card, feel free to reach out and I will find a way to get it to you. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Tune in next week, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time.